Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, a ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp, welcoming you back for another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today's topic is going to be one that's full of a lot of detail, and let's go slowly over this. It's been requested a lot. It's sort of an obvious request, but it's not necessarily an easy podcast to do because it's tedious. It has to do with a lot of little details that people ask about. And so the topic is supplementation with a ketogenic diet. Is it necessary? What are the ones you recommend? What are the ones you do not recommend? What's, general, what's out there is general knowledge. So that's pretty much what we're going to cover today. I'm going to go over generically what some of these uh, supplements are and why you might want to consider using them or not at all and what I believe is a waste of time. So it's my opinion. It's my opinion that comes from uh, 16 years in the context of a naturopathic doctor, a medical, clinical medical practice, and having a lot to do with supplements. We had a pharmacy that in itself was well over $100,000 inventory and all the headaches that that had of keeping it up to date and so on and so forth. However, so my belief of using supplements is this. They are of qualified usefulness, not forever. I believe finding and putting work and time and energy and understanding into what is a healthy diet is far, far better. However, for a couple of things. One is When people are in a context of pain or disease, whatever, and you know it can help them get to a better situation, then by all means, use those supplements. But diet has to be, the degree their diet can be improved, and I haven't found anybody whose diet cannot be improved that came to see me as a patient. So that's always a variable that needs to be worked on, and it's an important variable. But supplements can supplement that understanding. And supplements, in my view, except for a few exceptions, are not meant to be used forever. So now in my life, yes, I have some supplements that I take. I take, I don't think I take any supplements on a regular daily basis. I take some on a weekly basis, some maybe on a monthly basis, but I really orient, we really orient our lifestyle to food and uh, getting our nutrition through food. One of the things about food, the argument is, and it's mostly correct, if you ask me, is that the quality, the nutritional content of our food today for 98% of the people out there here is not what it was well over 150 years ago. That in part is due to how it's grown, of course, but it's also in part due to the layers and the amount of pesticides that are used on, now we're talking about vegetables, of course, and plants. And so the pesticides can be considered a contamination. And so these pesticides have their own problems. And then you can couple that with genetically modified and what the issues are in there. So the food isn't, the point is the food isn't what it was 150 years ago. So it's a different argument to say that you get all your nutrition from food. Therefore, I buy that. And I think there is a place for supplementation in that and because of that particular context. However, now in the course of a ketogenic diet, context. We'll quickly go over, which I think is kind of a long list here, but I'll try to make it as painless as possible. But I think there's just some things you're going to have to know about. This is a beginner's list of supplementation you may want to consider 
for a ketogenic diet or not. We're going to rule some things out here. And we will have at least two other podcasts on more advanced understanding of supplements. Okay? So just get the big picture is the objective for today. There will be a test. I forgot when that's going to be. Let's get started. Some of the things, when people start a ketogenic diet, and I'm going to put fasting in this too. Sometimes I'll talk about them differently. Sometimes I'll simply refer to them. You know, fasting, when you're on a fast, you're producing ketones. And so in essence, you can call that a ketogenic diet, extreme ketogenic diet. And obviously a ketogenic diet being very low carbs, under 20 grams of carbs per day. And you now know that because you've probably heard that on every podcast for the last 10 or so. And high fat and moderate protein that you have calculated on your muscle mass calculations that we've also talked about earlier. So low carb, high fat, moderate protein. In that context of a diet that we want to produce ketones for us and lower our blood glucose, some will lower it a lot, some very little. The idea comes up, do you need to take uh, branched chain amino acids? And why would somebody consider taking branched chain amino acids? Branched chain amino acids are unique three amino acids, valine, leucine, and isoleucine, that feed the liver. So there's a lot of different conditions that BCAAs are good for, but primarily it's always associated with those who work out a lot in terms of weightlifters, bodybuilders, etc. Because if they're wanting to increase their muscle mass, they will be breaking down their muscle mass and this helps repair that. It works in that context. That's not necessarily a ketogenic context, but uh, certainly in, in regards to fasting, for those who want to do a two, three, four, five or longer day fast, initially they will go through some protein muscle mass depletion and then that stops and then the body protects those sources. So what some people do is they take BCAAs as a bridge for those first two or three days for a longer fast to not have to minimize the protein deficiency, their muscle mass deficiency, wasting, depletion. And uh, it tends to work. So I have not done it that way. And one doesn't have to do it that way. When you think about the fasting goes back to 2,500 years, that uh, obviously people didn't do it that way. But this is one of those things people can now hack, if you will. I really don't like using the word hack, but it might supplement and make that part of the transition for a longer fast easier. The other, I'm going to bring up exogenous ketone salts again uh, as a bridge. And I mentioned this on the podcast about exogenous ketones. And that was, they too could be a bridge while you're trying to kickstart yourself and producing your own ketones by being low carb, high fat, moderate protein, that uh, taking ketones could get people over that bridge. So in the fasting sense, taking it two or three days until you're up and running on your own ketones, it looks like some people say they've they've felt better and it hasn't been a, a problem. I haven't had that problem. Maybe my first fast, I uh, fasted only up to seven days, but uh, my first multi-day fast was probably problematic for me. After that, it, it hasn't been so much. So take it for what it is. It's out there. You may want to consider it. I'm not saying it's a yes or it's a no. It's on a per-person basis, but uh, I'm not a big fan of exogenous ketones, generally speaking. Okay, uh, and you also could take this through to get through the keto flu, as they say. Keto flu is the transition into starting a ketogenic diet that some people feel it's 
they feel very tired. They feel achy and crampy, just like they're having a flu. Uh, it didn't happen to me, and it doesn't happen to everybody. But exogenous ketones may or may not help. Can't speak to an experience on that, that it hasn't helped me, and I didn't feel find it necessary. I never had the keto flu. The other reason for the keto flu, it's hypothesized, is basically your temporary decrease in electrolytes, electrolytes being magnesium, sodium, and potassium. So what would you do about that? Two things. So we're talking about the short term. We're just talking about the bridge to get through the keto flu, the first three days, maybe the first week. Take salt. Put salt, a good source of salt, sea salt, Himalayan salt, hopefully not just table salt. And if you have that, put that in your coffee, put that on your food. Often that's the remedy in itself. So you're getting plenty of sodium and you're getting potassium and you're getting other things in there. But um, being low on sodium is the thing that drives the fatigue or is the larger cause of the keto flu. Why do you have lower sodium in the ketogenic diet? A brief technical answer on that is that when you drop your carbs, you basically drop the demand for your body producing insulin. As your insulin drops, meaning it's less necessary to secrete insulin, to use insulin, to control your glucose levels. So when your insulin levels drop, you know, it's a hormone, then it talks to other hormones. So it talks to your kidneys and one of the conversations it has is that it retains less salt, less sodium. When you retain less sodium, you're going to feel tired. You're going to also have less of a thirst impulse. So you have to be conscious of drinking more water, even though you don't feel thirsty. But it's the lower sodium that makes people, we believe, tired for that first three or four days, or maybe that first week of the quote-unquote keto flu. So too is with fasting. So having salt while you're fasting is fine as well. Put it in your water, your coffee, your tea, whatever. So those are the bridge, you know, so we have BCAAs, exogenous ketones, we talked about salt. Long-term ketogenic diet, however, also depletes, and this is now well-documented in a number of studies, and you can Google it or PubMed it or whatever you want to do, and you'll find it's magnesium. Magnesium tends to be low, if not depleted, that means out of range. And if you're low on magnesium, what you're going to feel is you're going to get cramps. You're going to get muscle cramps. Maybe it's in your toes, your arch, your feet, your calves. And you get charley horses, maybe at night or wherever that may be, any part of your body. So a brief explanation of what magnesium has to do with cramps is that when you contract the muscle, you release calcium, which causes this contraction, causes that strength when you're uh, making that bicep. But so what happens when you don't want, when you stop contracting? Well, then magnesium is released. And it's in that context of contraction to relaxation, it is a muscle relaxant of a sort. So when you are low on magnesium, this is intercellular magnesium, that you will have a more difficult time to relax those muscles. Hence, they spasm. You'll feel these muscle spasms, these cramps. So taking magnesium is a good thing. The question then is, well, what forms of magnesium should I take? There's a lot. Magnesium comes in a lot of different forms for sure. The form you probably don't want to take or the forms are magnesium oxide and the other would be magnesium sulfate, which is Epsom salts. The reason you might not want to take those and it's not dangerous, it's just that they are used for other situations. They're used for people on a very specific detox program because they quickly create loose stools. If you're on a detox program, the idea is you want these things out of your body. 
and getting them out of your body through the stool is a good idea. So that's why they use those. However, if you're not on a detox program, you don't want to have loose stools. I wouldn't go with magnesium oxide or magnesium sulfite. The most commonly prescribed magnesium form is magnesium citrate. It's also the lowest cost of magnesium. There's a few brand names are Natural Calm, Go Slow Mag. It's very generic, you know, and it's been around for eons. Okay, what else would you use? I personally take a magnesium glycinate malate combo that suits me. It's Those are called chelates, by the way. And another form is called magnesium threonate. And the threonate is actually a form of vitamin C. So it's a magnesium coupled with a vitamin C. Some people like that a lot. It's certainly got a lot of publicity. I don't see that it has any advantage over magnesium citrate or glycinate malate combination. So uh, the last little caveat I would say, if there are people out there, and I certainly have experienced that from practice, that have a problem with citric acid citrates. If they are taking a magnesium citrate, they're going to have a problem. It's going to be painful. It's going to be a like an allergic reaction. So if you're one of those people, do not take magnesium citrate. Okay? So you have plenty of choices. Go for it. It's hard to make a wrong choice. And now you know the difference there. The other thing I take in regards to that, and it's a more generic, almost, almost exclu- exclusively a naturopathic recommendation, and that is what we call a CalMag, a calcium-magnesium combination for the reasons I just explained uh, in terms of muscles, contractions, relaxation. We give it in a one-to-one ratio, and it, this is almost a generic recommendation. There's plenty of companies that do uh, a CalMag of a one-to-one, and um why would we give that? And why did I say that as almost exclusively a naturopathic recommendation? It's because when people caught, would report cramps from their day-to-day, a very a great supplement to give that had almost no downside at all and had a great upside for cramps, muscle cramps in particular, muscle spasms, was CalMag. So feel free to look for that one. So I take a CalMag and I'm uh, a few times a week and I take a magnesium um, not quite every day, but I probably should take it every day for those reasons, because I have had cramps. Potassium and sodium. I think we've talked about sodium. Potassium is another electrolyte that has to do with your heart. I don't feel the necessity of taking it separately. Uh, I did for a while. Initially, I felt I had heart palpitations, but that went away when actually I started taking the uh, magnesium. So it's on the list. A uh, So when people say, well, take electrolytes, which are sodium, potassium, magnesium, you could do that. You could do that as well. I just think the emphasis really needs to be on magnesium and putting salt, in, more, more salt in your food, and that should cover it. So people say or ask, do I take a multivitamin? And the answer to that is, yes, I do. How often do I take a multivitamin? Once a week, if I can think of it, but once a week is not a bad thing. Do I take it every day? No, I, I really do not like taking uh, supplements. They are a constraint on a rule that I have to take every day and I don't have a dire condition that I need to be so wedded to that particular routine. But I think it's a good idea to take a multi. And so uh, without going into every little thing that's in a good multivitamin, I'm going to say this. It has vitamins. I'm going to break down some of them that I think are interesting to have. Uh, certainly a long array of minerals you know, sub, with selenium and iodine and biotin in there and all the others. But also it should have a group of carotenoids. So what are carotenoids? Carotenoids are the colored pigmented 
colored pigment that comes in vegetables like your yellows and your reds and your greens and your blues. So it's the colors. And we used to say, as a general vegetable dietary recommendation, to have five colors in your in your salad. And what we were actually focusing on were the carotenoids, getting people to have more carotenoids. Why are carotenoids important? Well, as you get older, uh, and this is only a few people are predisposed to a thing called macular degeneration. It's when your macula, the back of your eye, tends to not get all the nutrition it needs. And so what happens is that you'll get blind spots right in the middle of your vision, not on, not peripheral. You'll keep your peripheral vision, but you're uh, straight ahead. You'll, and it's not the same as floaters. You'll get, you'll get exactly what you're looking at you cannot see. So you're sort of having to look at the side of your eyes. They find that, and this is out, oh, 20, 30 years, you know, so it's not new information, that carotenoids are a great prevention. You could generalize and say it's antioxidants in general, but carotenoids are antioxidants, by the way. So taking carotenoids, a mixed carotenoids would be a great thing. And I think, um, especially in the context of a ketogenic diet, there are some carotenoids through meats and fish and so on, but they mostly come through the colored veggies. So you may be low on that. All right, now for some specific vitamins that I think that I have to take. And the reason I have to take these is because I'm genetically predisposed to a certain deficiency. And so how I do I know about this? Because it's a, in a field called nutrigenomics. So basically you can get your, uh, certainly 23andMe does this now, and Ancestry does this, you know, complete DNA raw data that you can get and have that analyzed. But before that happened, what we did is we simply, TedQuest Labs would do this test, and now C-Corp or any lab will do a genetic test. So you can get it one way or the other. And certain people have certain polymorphisms. A polymorphism is a mutation. It's a mutation in the population that is common enough not to be considered an unusual population. So they call it a poly. Morphism means that there are many variations of a particular enzyme or a string of proteins in, in humans. And some combinations are very efficient at doing their job, you know, converting A into B. And some are not very good at converting A into B. So one of those polymorphisms that are the, the worst to have, I have it, and I have it on both of my alleles from my mom and from my dad. And so that problem is about methylating. Um, I can't methylate folic acid very well, and I can't methylate B12 very well. Well, the good news is, so it really doesn't matter much of my diet, and people really don't know where methylated folic acid comes from. We all know that folic acid comes from, you know, dark green leafy vegetables like spinach, and that's where it first was isolated. But um, so I take a methylated folic acid called 5-MTHFR because MTHFR is the name of the enzyme that I have a very inefficient form of. So it's called 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. So I then take a methylated folate about once a week. I probably should be taking it two or three times a week. I don't like taking supplements. You hear that before? And I also take a B12 methylcobalamin for these particular reasons. You don't have to take it, but I feel it's been helpful. It's associated with things like high rates of infertility, schizophrenia, depression, 
Autism for sure. Actually, it was the first time when I was working with autistic children and getting blood work on autistic children. That was a trip, but you needed to do it. So I found that they had the highest correlation of any of my patients where it was with the MTHFR um, homozygous, meaning from their mom and from their dad. And these are the problems. They had other issues as well. So it wasn't just this alone, but this was a big deal. Okay. So I hope you understand that. There can be a podcast on going over one's genes. We're probably going to cover it in the newbie conversations with Brian, keto newbie with Brian, and have him go through the 23andMe download and we'll analyze some of, just some of the, the genes he may or may not have. Okay. There's a, you know, people want to hear what are the, what are the new and great supplements? You know, the, the true and tried supplements that are impressive in a lot of different contexts are CoQ10, of course, and CoQ10 comes in a lot of different forms, ubiquinone, philic, CoQ10, and debinone, that's another form, supposedly it's, so what are all these? Let's just call it CoQ10. What do all these do? They basically are very specific for your mitochondria or your respiratory change, and it really does make a difference. And uh, I've seen this in uh, a number of heart patients that you give them, and this is now common knowledge. This is not, this is easy to Google, but it certainly goes back more than 20 years of CoQ10 with a number of heart conditions. Magnesium, by the way, is also good for heart conditions if you're low. But CoQ10 was really help people regain a lot of strength in that condition. Generally, it's right up there with CoQ10. Reversitol was another one. Reversitol is expensive and the doses had to be so high, I just eliminated from our inventory and it was just too much of a trendy, overhyped supplement, but some that when you look at the research, it looks like, gosh, but it, I just never saw the effect. So CoQ10 and this next one that I have experience with is called nicotinamide rosamide. And there's a number of companies that make this. The one that we use does come from Thorne called Niacil, because that's the first company I've singled out. Well, I'm going to work up the sheet and there'll be another number of companies you can get this from, but Niacil is interesting, and it's also, it's a mitochondria-supportive supplement, and it does make a difference. And so when have I noticed this? I made it, noticed it in working out. It seemed like, you know, you if, you if you're working at that edge of these are my limits and you have a pretty thorough workout, you go in knowing it's going to be a hard workout for your hour or however long you're going to be in there, or longer, or whatever, and you come out tired. This sort of removed a lot of that. I don't like taking, it was almost like candy for a workout and there's no sugar involved. Maybe it's a bad analogy in this particular situation, but it's a very helpful supplement. It's alleged to increase your volume of NAD plus. Why would you care? NAD plus is associated with a lot of uh, anti-aging mechanisms, but again, it comes back down to uh, mitochondria. I would look at that one. I'm not going to go mitochondria plus crazy here because this is what the whole ketogenic diet is about restoring what they call a mitochondria biogenesis, making newer and better working mitochondria and getting rid of the old ones. But that was an interesting supplement. Um, I experienced good things. And when you look into it, it does decline as we age. So does CoQ10. That's why both of those ones are very helpful to take. Don't get addicted to it. There is no addiction with these, but just take some and you'll see and, and explore for yourself. It's very hard to get at a toxic level. You couldn't afford to get at a toxic level, uh, actually. But it has to do with muscle endurance, the brain and nerves, 
basically healthy aging and metabolism, meaning mitochondria. Okay, I'm not going to go into zinc, selenium, iodine. They're all good, but they should be part of your multi. Perhaps if there's enough questions asked in the future, we'll break down some of these particular values. But I think just saying, you know, they're important. Zinc and magnesium are used in so many different uh, enzymatic actions in the body that it's just one of the things we need to have and can't afford to be deficient in. Curcumin. Uh, we use turmeric as a condiment. And uh, curcumin, turmeric, uh, I find that they have a large history. There's a number of supplements that are made with the best form of curcumin. I, I've given up on that. I'm not going to be spending my money on supplements. However, we have turmeric from Trader Joe's that I, we put in our coffee, we put on our chicken, we put on a lot of our food, put it in our fat coffee that we have during the... So uh, that's something, but I don't go nuts over it and I don't take it as a supplement. Feel free, if you want to do that, do that. We make our own bone broth. I think that's a great thing to do. So if we eat meat, we keep the bones. They accumulate. We actually go out and buy marrow bones. We have them at Whole Foods, uh, sliced down the middle, so we can uh, smoke the opened, cut open uh, marrow bones. We save that fat. We then use those bones and we boil those bones in a slow cooker for about two or three days. Nice the nice taste that comes out with a smoked marrow bone is amazing. And we throw in the other bones we've had from various steaks or uh, even chicken. We save the chicken bones because you have your, your collagen. This is the reason you're doing this is your collagen. So bone broth is not just collagen, by the way. It has a lot of collagen. It has a lot of different forms of collagen. That's why you're doing bone broth. But it also has a lot of very absorbable minerals, certainly calcium, magnesium, and so on, that have made up the matrix of your bones, okay? So that's why we do that. We put it in jars after we make it, and we pull out a jar every so often and maybe have an after-dinner tea of bone broth or in the afternoon as a soup alternative. Others that I we keep around ubiquitously, and one is N-acetylcysteine, NAC. Why do I do that? Uh, that's kind of the ultimate anti-inflammatory, very quick anti-inflammatory. So if I was going out to a party at night, which I don't do that much anymore. And if I felt I'd be having more alcohol than I wanted to, or or any of that, or I can be there's gonna be a lot of smoking or so on, I would probably take a few NAC before I went out and maybe a few when I got back, and that helps the liver a lot. I'll leave it at that level of understanding. It does a lot more than that. It helps uh, with glutathione regeneration and uh, reduction, I should say. Uh, DGL is another one, diglycerated liquish. This is not necessarily a ketogenic only supplement. It's basically for heartburn because uh, heartburn often comes from taking coffee, alcohol, chocolate, and I'm forgetting one, coffee, alcohol, chocolate, uh, mint. And what this does, and so those four things, and they're classic, tends to relax your upper esophageal sphincter, that is right right below your epiglottis and your throat. So when it relaxes it, meaning it opens it, you'll get a reflux and you'll get that sense of heartburn. Uh, DGL coats your esophagus and your stomach and uh, balances that whole mechanism. So it's a nice, easy thing to do. You could have a ton of it. There's no, I don't think it's any toxicity at all. It would be, you'd have to eat a truckload of it. But it's one of those ubiquitous supplements I have. We take plenty of water. I have plenty of water. I'm not, and actually it's hard for me to drink water because I don't remember to drink water. Seldom even when I go out in the gym unless I'm really a hard workout. And of course, I use my C8 because I like the 
triglycerides, a caprylic acid triglyceride, because that helps making ketones. That's my short list. So some is unique to starting a ketogenic diet and to fasting. Others are just supplements generally mentioned. One of the things I wanted to mention is people ask about sweeteners. I use stevia, and and stevia has slightly different forms. Some are bitter and some are not bitter. You're going to have to figure out what works for you. So what works for me is stevia from a company named Protocol. That just works for me. I am, from practice, I am strongly against anybody being on artificial sweeteners. I'm not saying bad. I'm telling you that there's a lot of problems that are caused by by sucralose, which is Splenda, and aspartame, which is equal, NutraSweet, etc. It's just bad news. Also, in the keto world, people are, so what should I use? They'll cook with erythritol. Um, erythritol does not work for me. And um, since Judy likes to cook, we've tried erythritol, and it's, I would put it right up there with bogus. It does not work for me. I don't want it in my food. Out. Then people say, well, if not erythritol, what about xylitol, which is a natural, comes from birch bark, or at least it did initially. It's a sugar alcohol. I used to uh, have, there's like Lifesavers and gum that came in with xylitol, and that was about as far as I went with xylitol. We also have tried to cook with xylitol, but for whatever reason in this context, it just doesn't work with me. What does that mean? It affects my bowels. We'll go that far. So I'm, I like stevia and uh, Judy does not. So sometimes it compromises, and if we're making something special, we'll do a little xylitol with a little stevia. And that's about as far as it goes. So that's, I think that's good to know. Please do not use artificial sweeteners. You know, take that seriously. Take it, put it right up there with pesticides. You know, do you want to take pesticides on a per teaspoon basis? No. Well, don't have sweeteners in this way. One little extra comment, and I don't, I really don't want to dig other people's perspectives, but you'll find when you go on to different keto sites, one topic that all of them do not want to talk about is what they call food quality. They don't want to talk about genetically modified foods. They do not want to talk about artificial sweeteners. In fact, they'll recommend artificial sweeteners to get people off of sugar. I would say that first step, if that's absolutely the way they have to go, you know, they getting off of sugar and they have to go to, and, and stevia and xylitol combination didn't work for them, then okay. But long-term, you're asking them to take a little bit of poison to get away from the sugar. So I, I, I think it's a very dicey choice to recommend. However, I understand that recommendation. But you'll never, you'll, you'll find that they are, there's a, like a, a deafness about artificial sweeteners. They just don't go there. They're not going to talk about it. They're not going to talk about GMOs. And they're not going to talk about non-pesticided, what I call non-contaminated veggies. Or they're not going to talk about quality of beef. That's, that's, so I don't know why nobody wants to talk about that, but from a naturopathic perspective, we are all about food quality. And that's a very important point. We'll explore this as we go down the road, but just keep in mind, that's a choice. And we are not all of the same voice all the time. And this is one of those times in which we differ in our recommendations. So with that, I am going to close for today. And, you know, what I want to put out there is that we're trying to give one little nugget at a time in these podcasts in the Facebook group. So if you have any questions, feel free to email me at carl, K-A-R-L, at salamander-bay.com. Salamander, S-A-L-A-M-A-N-D-E-R-B-A-Y.com. Carl at salamanderbay.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is called Keto Naturopath, as is this podcast, and soon 
will be having interviews on this podcast, and soon we'll be having a blog that will correspond to the deeper topics we're talking about here. I hope to hear from you. I hope to uh, see you at one place or another, and uh, have a good day. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath, same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions, and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy, week after week.